darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he is calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who have died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, you loved us so much that you yourself stepped into human history, became a baby, walked a perfect life with us, marched willingly to that cross, and yielded up your spirit so that we can be restored with God. May this truth never grow dull. Lord, may we come and look at the cross daily and dwell and deeply meditate on what the implications for our life is. Oh Lord, help us love you more because you first loved us. As we pray in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. So tonight we are continuing a series that we are working through on Christian doctrines, really teachings which are unique to Christianity. Beliefs that, if you preach them correctly, would get you thrown out of a synagogue. Truths that Paul were, was ejected from the synagogue for preaching. Tonight's message would get me arrested, perhaps even stoned, if I did this on a street corner in Islamabad or Riyadh. Of all the doctrines that we are examining in our Sunday evening series, they all are important to our faith. But tonight's doctrine, God died, is front and foremost in Christianity. You cannot be a Christian if you deny tonight's teachings. It is, at the same time, both the, the tallest peak in the mountain range of biblical truth, as well as the lowest valley of human depravity. Tonight we stand on the holiest of grounds. We should remove our shoes, we should tread with care. For tonight, we glimpse 
the impossible. Jesus, God, died. Tonight we marvel at the incredible. God died for the sins of the world. Tonight we can say the truth that even angels cannot say. God died for us. And if you're a Christian here tonight, if you've tasted the grace freely available at Calvary, and through it you've been restored to God, you can go further. You can say, God died for me. This monumental truth is is stamped all over the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. To give you a sample of this, I'll give you just two texts. One from the Old Testament, prophesying God was going to die. And one from the New Testament, which is on the screen behind me, which told us that he died. From the Old Testament, it's very easy to choose this text. Isaiah 53, I believe I call that the fifth gospel, Isaiah 53. Verses 8 to 10, it's on your sheet, talking of the Messiah, talking of Jesus, later revealed, talking of God the Son. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 900 years before Jesus died, that was prophesied. Sorry, about 500 years. And then the text on the slide before me, behind me, Romans 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his love for us that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us in light of this amazing truth before I continue with this message I would just like to pause for a moment to allow us all to to think what it meant for Christ to die for you let's just think of that truth This doctrine of God dying is so much bigger than we have time for tonight. Therefore, I'm not going to spend any of the time tonight going over the previous doctrines that we've done through our series. For example, I'm now going to tell you what I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you proving that biblically Jesus is God. We covered that under the Trinity doctrine. I'm not going to explore the accuracy and the inerrancy of the Bible where we get all our truth from. God speaks was that doctrine which we covered. I'm not going to turn the page fast enough. I'm not going to take any time reminding us how we are all sinners and we deserve the judgment of God. I'm going to assume that we have all those doctrines firmly in place in not only our, our heads, our minds, 
but we have them applied to our hearts. And if anybody has any doubt on these, please come to me afterwards. Come to one of the elders of the church. We'll happily talk to you on these issues. I'm also going to make an assumption. I'm going to assume that everybody here tonight has heard that Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son, died on the cross for the sins of the world collectively and effectually for all those who would ever believe. This is staple pulpit diet. And if you are not a member of this church, but you go to a, a, a biblical preaching church, you will hear this day in and day out. We heard that this this morning. Jesus died for the sins of the world collectively, but individually applied that salvation to all who would believe. This evening, I want to approach Jesus' death from a point of view of what it means for us today. I want to look at it from a, a devotional perspective. I, I hope the Lord will, will, will apply this truth to your heart. So when you're going through the week and you hit Thursday afternoon at 3.17, that you have a picture of the cross and you think, because of that, I can continue. And to do this, I would like to consider seven implications of Christ's death on the cross for our day-to-day -day life. Seven of them. If you have a sheet, they are listed very briefly. I'm, I'm barely touching on that sheet. You'll see down the sides, there's some more stuff you can read. I'm not going there, but it, it largely helps you maybe follow me. The first implication of Christ's death for us has to be one of wonder. God, the creator of the heavens and earth, stepped into his creation, clothed himself in frail human flesh. He added humanity to his nature. He felt temptations just as we do. He felt hunger, fatigue, grief, loss, pain, betrayal. All concepts which were familiar to God, but now he has tasted them as a human because he added being fully human to his already fully divine nature when he came into this world. But why did he do it? Why did he come into Why did he? Such condens, condescension as the hymn goes. Why would he step down to play with us in the earth, in the dirt? Why would he do that? To die on the cross to save sinners. To save me. To save you. To save people who are constantly rebelling against him. To save those who he had chosen before the foundations of the world. Despite knowing every sin I would ever do, ah, he showed his love for me by rescuing me from the judgment he knew my sin would rightly deserve. He stepped into the world for that purpose. 
he came to die. God saved me from God. But for him to remain just, as we heard this morning, my sin still needed to be dealt with. My rebellion against an infinitely holy God becomes infinitely treacherous and merits infinite punishment. Therefore, only an infinite God can step between himself, the judge, and me, the condemned. And when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't merely pay the penalty of my sin. That's incredible in itself. Paying my sin debt, a debt which I could not hope to scratch even the surface of, he wiped out my offense to God. But there I was, just not offensive. I still wasn't perfect. So Jesus did more than wiped out my sin. When my sin was placed upon his shoulder, his perfect life was credited to me. Now you know me, most of you. Would you say my life is perfect? I think that was my daughter coughing just then. It's not. But when God sees me through Christ... He sees the, he doesn't see my imperfections. He sees the perfect life that Jesus lived. Does this cause us to wonder, to praise God, to be devoted to God? Other little picture, confusing picture on the notes. When we approached the cross, we were heavenly in the negative before we became Christian. And God's mercy wiped out that negative debt. It brought us to neutral. And God is not a God of neutral. But then God's grace credited that righteousness to me. Some clever people call that double imputation. My, my sin was imputed to Christ, counted to Christ, credited to Christ, and his righteousness me so I go from all the way from the left negative infinity through zero all the way to right because of nothing I have done but because what God did when he died on the cross for the sins of the world there are other reasons for Christ dying but surely there's none as personal as the fact that he died for me. When we look at the cross, when we consider the perfect, spotless Lamb of God suffering the wrath of God for me, this doctrine cannot merely remain a cold fact stored in some sterile vault in my brain. It must inflame my heart to praise and worship and wonder. Otherwise, I couldn't really believe what it meant. That's the first one. We wonder at God. We marvel at God. The second one is the challenge of the cross. The biblical gospel of being declared right with God 
only by trust in his completed work on the cross, that doctrine must challenge us. It must arrest us. And it begs the question, has Christ's death bought salvation for me? It's a question you must ask. We talk about Christ on the cross. Has it been applied to our souls? Have I seen my sin and my guilt laid on Christ at Calvary, judged and punished there in him? Have you? Have I called on him to save me and found grace to trust in his finished work on the cross for forgiveness, for peace, for righteousness? If not... May we come now to the cross and ask him to save us. Ask him who said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Let not this be a doctrine which causes Christians to wonder, and we sit outside the camp thinking, what is it all about? May the Holy Spirit move and convert those who have not yet tasted the challenge of the cross. Third, I have seven points, I must move through them. Thanksgiving. The Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation from exile on Patmos. And he writes this in an expression of praise and thanksgiving. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve God and his God and Father, to him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Thanksgiving. There he was. When Paul was in prison, what was he doing? Singing. Thanksgiving. The deeper our understanding of the cross, the deeper our thanksgiving, the more intimate our worship. Do you struggle with worship? Do you, do, do you get in the congregation, or, uh, God's house, and you think, well, this song sucks, it's not my favorite. Oh, this is my favorite one. Do you struggle with worship when you don't get your way? Well, you would do good to look at your heart to see how close you are, how you understand the cross. Because when we look at the cross, suddenly our preferences seem kind of silly. When David exclaims, Restore to me the joy of my salvation, he gives words to a sad observation we've all seen, that often our thankfulness dims with time. Just like newlyweds, when we first get saved, there's no limit to our thanksgiving, to our joy, our praise, our delight in the things of the Lord. But continuing this metaphor, as the years of marriage march on, the euphoria of those early days become threatened with the meh of everyday life. 
and what should happen in a marriage is that the years together should replace this initial intense honeymoon passion with a much deeper, richer love, which is beyond comprehension of those newlyweds or us when we were first married. Likewise, the passion of the believer, of the new believer, should give way to richer, deeper love of someone who has walked consistently with the Lord over years, over decades. And that is why our thanksgiving should never dull. The newlywed Christian is, Yay! I'm being saved! The Christian who's been a Christian for decades looks at the cross and thinks, I have such love. I cannot comprehend. I know so much more now than I did when I was first saved. And the more I know about the cross, the more worthless I am. And the more worthless I am, the more marvel the fact that he saved me anyway. How do we grow closer to the Lord and not merely older? By thinking deeply on the cross. It wasn't many years ago, I was already a pastor, and I wouldn't own it up to this. But some part of me thought the gospel was for evangelism. And we must tell the gospel, to, and I had great pleasure telling the gospel to people, but when I went to church, I wanted to get into the doctrines. Oh, what a fool I was. How wrong could I be? The gospel is for us. Not only does it make us Christian, once we are Christian, it makes us Christ-like. Staring at the cross, devoted, understanding on a deeper, greater, more profound level, year after year, should never grow cold. Think deeply on the cross. Meditate on the gospel. If you think you've got it, go back and get more. Because there's so much more than any man would ever know in this world. As we grow in the Lord, and as we get to know him better, we understand him better. And as this happens, the cross becomes, at the same time, more terrible and more terrific. And I think you know what I mean by that. Terrible that the darling of heaven got nailed by man to the cross. And terrific because he did it for me. And it's this contrast of the darkness of the act of man at the cross with the, with the light of the outcome of the cross that should fuel our thanksgiving. If your thanksgiving has become dull, go back to the cross. Deeply dwell again on the mercy of God. Taste afresh the gift of grace that you have not earned, but you've been given.
the next implication of God dying for us, is confidence. The world we live in is a mess. That is not news. How do we walk through this world boldly, confident that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? How can we do it? It becomes possible when we ponder the ultimate expression of the love of God, the cross. Our confidence in Christ is, the basis, is based on the fact that on the cross, he did it all. We didn't do it. If we did it, we would let ourselves down. We would have no confidence. If any part of our salvation was due to my effort, how could I walk through this world confident? But when we look at the cross, and when we ponder deeply and meditate on what happened there, we realize it was nothing to do with us. The only effort that we did at the cross was heaping our sins on the shoulders of he who was hanging there. We did nothing else. And he drank that cup of wrath empty for us. And we were just throwing our sin, throwing our sin, throwing our sin. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In this world, the world we live in, relationships strain and sometimes break. But our relationship with Christ through the cross cannot be broken. In this world, health deteriorates and death separates. But the cross is where Jesus died to conquer death. It has been disarmed of its sting. In this world, our finances are stretched. Hunger looms. Loss of social status lurks at the door. But the cross secures us riches in heaven. A royal banquet and princely status. Only through the cross can we draw near to the living God in all his blazing holiness and awesome majesty and say, Abba, Daddy, Father, and confidently know that we will be embraced, welcomed, affirmed. Because of the cross, we can boldly go where no angel has trod before without fear. We have confidence because God died. The next implication of the cross for us is identification. In Colossians 3.3, 3, Paul writes, For you died... He's talking about when we became a Christian. We died to the old man. For we died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. God died for us to hide in him in God. Before the cross, as we stand looking 
on Golgotha, on Calvary, there is no Jew or Gentile. There is no Englishman or South African. There is no black or white. There is no male or female, CEO or laborer. And everyone walks away from that cross in one of two statuses, either saved or unsaved. Believer or non-believer. Christian or not. The cross may have been on a hill, but the ground is forever leveled for those who believe around it. I studied quite a bit of economics in my life, and there's a principle in economics that says something is worth what somebody is willing to pay for it. Okay, and if you look on any of these antiques roadshows, you'd think it's crazy, but it works. The principle's good. If God died to purchase us, what does that make our value? The price of a human soul becomes infinite because the infinite Son of God purchased it with his life. Whatever we were before, we are now hidden in Christ because when he died in the cross, he died in our place and in some mysterious way, we died with him. That is the value of a soul. That is the price you have been purchased with. The tag that you have on, redeemed because God died. So because of the cross, our previous labels become relatively unimportant. And now we have the label Christian as our primary identity. And as we gaze with astonishment at the cross and see the the limitless deaths of his suffering as he bears the sin and tragedy of this world, there's another pull on our lives. As he identifies with our sin and we are identified with his righteousness, the call is for us to live out our identity in Christ in this broken and fallen world. That's our identity. That's what the cross means. He identified with us. We identified with him. So go identify. Monday to Friday, Saturday, not just the hour and a half on Sunday mornings. Identify. That is your identity. This means we are to open our hearts to the pain of the world, to weep with those who weep, to struggle with the strugglers, to accept rejection with the rejected, poverty with the poor, abuse with the abused, and suffer with the suffering. We are to, our identity means we are to be as Jesus was, and is. And when you look at the cross, when you dwell on that, remember there is a mobilization call to be Christ-like because he identified with you. Next, related to this, is mission. He who hung on the cross and opened his arms to embrace us is the same who tells us to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the world, earth. 
or Flitwick, Bedfordshire, and the rest of the world. And Romans 12, verse 1, clearly links this. It links the mercy of God with us being a living sacrifice, which is reasonable, not over the top. Living sacrifice is just what God deserves. People who go out to the mission field are doing reasonable service. Now, we look up to them as if, wow, they're super Christians. That's our job. Maybe not eating mapani worms in Botswana. Maybe our job is just to go to next door and to give our neighbors the gospel. That's our mission field for this month as a church. To have come to the cross ourselves and experience the miracle of free justification is to be under obligation to share the message of the cross with fellow sinners. And you can have the confidence that the strong grace that saved you is able to save them. You are not better, and you know this, you understand this. You're not better. It doesn't take more grace to save them to save you. If your confidence that the message of the gospel can work is that you, that's the confidence. Look to the cross. Understand who you are. Identify with him. Understand he has purchased you. And if he can do it for you, he can do it through you to the person you're talking to. It is sufficient to save all who trust it, however deep their need or terrible their sin. And this affects everything, our whole lifestyle, our conversation in the stores, in the streets, on the shop floor, should be identified with Christ as a mission focus. The use of our time, the stewardship of our money, the extent of our prayers. Thinking deeply on the cross is costly for us. It changes our life. That's the reason we don't do it. If I stare at the cross for too long, if I read about Jesus dying, if I think of the implications, it's going to change my life and most of us like our life just as it is now. Thank you very much. Hashtag worth. It is worth looking at the cross. It is worth changing. It is our reasonable surface service. And the seventh point, the cross becomes the builder of community. Across across all the great and terrible divides in this world of gender, generation, race, color, national identity, history, personality, wealth and social status, capacity, intelligence, health and wholeness of mind and body, house in the states or suburbs, neighborhoods or in refugee camps, in enclaves of affluence and in forgotten deserts of squalor. The cross means we can build community. It now becomes possible. When God died on the cross, he demonstrated a love so great that it transcends prejudice and builds community where there was no community before. God demonstrates his love for us. We change 
we show that love for others, community happens. It starts with the cross. This is seven responses of our lives that the cross should nurture in us. Wonder, challenge, thanksgiving, confidence, identity, mission and community. All of which form part of our reasonable service. That God showed us as he showed his love for us in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, just to wrap up, it may seem a little strange to you that while the world is gearing up for Christmas, the lights, I think they're going on in Amptel today, which means if you're driving home, don't go through Amptel Town Centre. The lights, the carol services, the John Lewis advert, now dragons are associated with Christmas. We've had the bunny and Easter for years, now we've got the Christmas dragon. While the world is gearing up for Christmas, it might seem slightly odd to take an evening like this in November and talk about the events of Good Friday, the cross. But remember, Christ in the crib never saved anyone. It is Christ on the cross who isolated us from the wrath of God when he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He prayed for us, and then the innocent Lamb of God took the full force of God's wrath on his soul. I don't think the physical tortures of the cross were, by far they were not the worst. He took the burden of sin on his soul, so that all who believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Praise God. But in the next few weeks, this country will be staring so intently into the cradle, they will likely miss the cross. The virgin birth is necessary for the sinless sacrifice at Calvary, but it is not sufficient. Friends, when you stare into the cradle this season, see the cross as a shadow across that baby and understand that sweet little swaddled child came to die for us. 30 years later, that baby is now grown up when that blooded form hung from nails driven into him by human hands, know that he was just as innocent as he was the day he was born. It was our, no, it was my, no, it was your sin. Our bitter thoughts, our evil deeds that crowned his blood-stained brow. God died for me. Let's pray. Oh Lord, ouch. Every time I stare at your cross, Lord, it reminds me of the man who spoke to Jesus and said, I believe Help thou mine unbelief. O Lord, 
Forgive me for when I have thought lightly of the cross. Forgive me, Lord, for those years where I thought it was for baby Christians. Forgive me, Lord, for those wasted years, those wilderness years, where I've missed out on knowing you better because I was skipping around the cross instead of staring deeply at it. Oh, Lord, may we as a church meditate on the cross. That mother who is battling with their children, may she look to the cross. That worker who is battling with their boss, look to the cross. That person with sickness, look to the cross. The person who is grieving, look to the cross. Oh Lord, let us stare intently. And if we, and if we do not feel the cross... It is, if we're not strengthened by it, if we're not getting our confidence in that cross, may we stare longer at the cross. For that person who's battling with mental health, go to the cross. Take our burdens and lay them at the feet. Lord, forgive us for dulling our joy. Pick us up. Strengthen us. Let us rejoice because we have spent time with you at the cross. This we pray. In the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.